is regret. I'm pretty sure we have met every single day of your life. I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, drag right back down again. Till you've lost all belief And these are the voices And these are the lies And I have believed them For the very last time Hello, my name is Child of the One True King I've been changed, I've been changed I have been set free church. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together.
unstoppable, anything is possible. Joy unspeakable, faith unsinkable, love unstoppable, anything is possible. Joy unspeakable, faith unsinkable, love unstoppable, anything is possible. Joy unspeakable, faith unsinkable, love unstoppable, anything is possible. Just to And with us sing, oh, praise him, hallelujah, thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, oh, praise him, oh, praise him.
and your life was the offering. Even death, it has lost its sting. And now we have forever. And you can't take away what the world didn't give. We were made for more. We were made for more at the end of the day. This will remain forever. We are yours. Forever we are yours. You made a place at your table, God. Paved the way for the poor and lost. Called us into your open arms. And now we have forever. And you can't take away what the world didn't give. We were made for more. psalmist declares in Psalm 27 verses 13 and 14, I would have been without hope if I had not believed that I would see the loving kindness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be strong. Yes, wait for the Lord. If faith can move the mountains, let the mountains move. We come with expectation, waiting here for you. Waiting here for you. You're the Lord of all creation, and still you know my heart. The author of salvation. Loved us from the start Waiting here for you Oh, you're 
We sing hallelujah, Father. We wait in expectation for you. We wait as you speak into our hearts, as you speak your love to us, as you call us to deeper relationship with you. Draw us ever deeper, Lord, into the kind of faith that can walk on water. Amen. Before you're seated, please take a couple minutes and greet those who are around you. The scripture reading for today comes from Acts 28, 17 through 31. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some of them were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We have an opportunity now to give back to God a little of all that he has lavished upon us as the ushers come forward to receive our offerings, and we'll sing together. All of the earth makes straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call back the sinner, wake up the saint, let every nation shout of your fame. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride 
Please be seated. N.T. <clears throat> Wright says that when you come to the end of the book of Acts... You're expecting a symphony of brass and cymbals and timpani. You're expecting this glorious climax of all the things that have happened in this book. All of the defeats and all the victories and all of that coming to completion in this glorious ending. That you stand back and you say, oh, this is awesome. This is the church. But instead... What we hear is not the sound of brass and timpani and cymbals. It's not a crescendo. It's, it's sort of a haunting melody, much like Naomi was just playing. There is this, this open-endedness when you come to the end of the book of Acts. And, and I read this and I want closure. I, I want the package wrapped up and the bow tied nice and to say, look, we've done it. The church is victorious. We've won. It's all taken care of. Let's go celebrate. 
But instead, we probably know less than we'd like to know. We don't know anything about what happens to Paul. We don't know anything that happens to Apollos or Aquila and Priscilla or most of the people we read about in this book. And we don't know anything about the church. It's as if Luke comes to the end and it just sort of drops off. And there is this mystery. I suspect that's exactly what Luke intended. If the story ends with Paul or Peter or Paulus or anyone else, the temptation would be to say, this is a book about Paul or Paulus or Peter. But instead, we get this ending that's not closed. We get this ending that, that doesn't come to us the way we want, and it's as if there is so much more, and that's exactly the point. Mark Batterson talks about prayer and says that in prayer, it's, we often want our prayers to be like a period in a sentence. That you come to the end, you put the period on the end of it and say, we're done, this is good, we can walk away. But often, God doesn't respond to our prayers the way we want. He doesn't respond as quickly or in the way that we would like. And actually, the end of our praying is really much more like an ellipsis than a period. It's that dot, dot, dot at the end of the sentence that tells us it's not quite done and we don't know exactly where it's going to go and how long it's going to take and where it's going to lead us. It's just mystery. When I read that, I thought that's the end of the book of Acts. It's mystery. It's open-ended. And in a world like we live in, When we have a thousand, maybe a million reasons to be cynical and to feel despair and hopelessness. A million reasons every day that we cry out, how long, O Lord, until you come and do something about terrorism and violence and war and the persecution of Christians. How long, O Lord, until this gets taken care of? How long are you going to sit back and let all this happen? How long? You felt it, I felt it. There are some days where I just think, Lord, is anything ever going to be right? Because in our world, it feels like truth seems to lose and, and love gets taken advantage of. And how you win and get ahead is power and might and strength and wealth and fame. And so many people will get trampled in the process. We say, how long, O Lord? I suspect there is something of that in Paul's mind. You know, we see this image of him at the end of Acts. What we didn't read in chapter 27, he's come to a shipwreck. And, you know, he crawls up to to the island of Malta and ends up getting to Rome. And he gets to Rome and he's he's falsely accused. He's done nothing that would deserve what he's getting. He's been been beaten within an inch of his life numerous times. He's imprisoned, and now he's in Rome awaiting trial, and he's been sitting there for year after year. And if anybody had reason to despair and feel hopeless and cynical, it would be Paul. And yet, what we find here in Paul is not cynicism. We don't find despair. What we find is Paul preaching the gospel. We We find Paul boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ. And while we tend to want to escape the world, Paul's engaging it. While we want to run away from the problems, Paul is thriving in the midst of them. But isn't that what Jesus said, he, what he wants for his followers? I mean, John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And not, he says, not just the 12 who are around him, but all of us, everyone will be his disciple. And he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. But I am asking you to keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to this world any more than I do. But make them holy. Teach them your word. I'm sending them into the world. 
And when God sends us into the world, it's not in a spirit of despair and cynicism and hopelessness. It's in a spirit of thriving. And that's what we're called to be. And that's what it means to be the church. And that's what I see in Paul. He is bearing witness to Christ. And what he's bearing witness to is the hope that is ours in Christ. In Paul's mind, and you get a sense that this letter is almost circling back to the beginning. Because in Paul's mind, everything comes back to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus has promised to do. And in the very first chapter of Acts, the disciples stand there talking with Jesus. And all of a sudden, he starts raising in the sky. Wouldn't that have been a wild thing to watch? And they're going, where are the wires? They don't see any wires. He's into the sky, and they're standing there staring at him, dumbfounded, as we would be. And an angel comes to them and says, why are you guys staring up in the sky? The same Jesus who you've just seen ascend is going to come back. And when he comes back, all of the stuff that isn't right, all of the stuff that's messed up is going to be put right. He's going to usher in the kingdom He's going to do what we want him to do and more. And until that day, as God's people, as his children, as the church, you go into the world and you bear witness to who Christ is and bear witness to the hope of Christ. We have every reason in the world to hope because Christ who was dead is alive. Christ who has ascended is going to descend. Christ who has appeared once is going to reappear at some point. And that's our hope. I mean, that's what keeps us going. That's what makes living in this fallen, broken, painful world worth it. That's why we believe that even when there's death, there's life. Even when there's pain, there's a reason to rejoice. And even in sorrow, there's a reason to give thanks. Because of the hope that's ours in Christ. We live in a world that, from the perspective of the, of the gospel, is like a photographic negative. You've seen those, where all the colors are backwards. And what's light is dark, what's dark is light. And, and you look at it and you think, oh, this looks weird. But so much of the world is lived in that, from that perspective. And the kingdom, in the kingdom, we get a new perspective. In the kingdom, we get a perspective that's real and true. We don't no, no longer are we living in the shadows of what people think is truth. In the hope of Christ, we see the truth for what it is. And when you see the truth for what it is, it changes things. And, and so when you talk about thriving, you're talking as the church, we're talking about having a different perspective than the rest of the world. For so much of the world to thrive... Well, let me put it this way. In so much of the church, to thrive is, is we measure that the same way that you measure thriving if you're McDonald's or Macy's or State Farm Insurance or take your pick. It's about numbers. It's about being bigger, faster, stronger. I mean, that's what it means to thrive. And in the church, we are so tempted to think that's what thriving means. But actually... When you read through the book of Acts, when you read through the Gospels, when you read through the whole scripture, we find that thriving in the kingdom of God is more about things like being faithful and being generous and being compassionate and caring about unity and being a place of refuge for people who have no refuge and, and being forgiving and celebrating other people's successes and speaking the truth from a heart of love and gentleness. That's hard for us. It's hard for anyone. Because quite frankly, when you approach the world that way, it's pretty easy to get taken advantage of, to get trampled on, to be ignored. We don't get the kind of fame and adulation that we would like to get. And so we often decide, let's go back to the other strategies. And we use the same strategies everybody else uses. We just Christianize them. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons we do that is because we live with an inferiority complex. When you're not focused on the hope that's ours in Christ, when you forget that Christ is has, has done everything that needs to be done and that... Trusting in him is the only real way to live. When you forget that, 
then you start fighting for everything because you feel inferior to the people who have all the power and the wealth and the fame and the influence. And so sometimes the church just fights back just like everyone else. About oh, a little more than 15 years ago, 15 and a half years ago, we decided as a family we would get a dog and there's a whole thing of experiences that got us to that decision and I won't go into that. But we decided to get a dog and we decided that we would have, we would get a, we wanted a house dog, so we went for a small dog. So in the course of trying to figure that out, we actually were at a soccer match and we saw a, a woman who had a little dog. And we're like, that's perfect. That's exactly what we want. And we found out where she got it. And so we made some inquiries. And so we went to our local veterinarian and said, um, so we're thinking about getting this small dog. What do you think? And he kind of smiled. He said, well, you need to understand small dogs have an inferiority complex. You know, he said, they are always trying to prove themselves. They're always trying to prove that they're as tough as the big dogs and, and that they're as mean as the big dogs and they can do anything that the big dogs can do. And so that's why they bite, you know, that's why they, they tend to bite more, much more than big dogs do and they bark all the time. And, and they, you know, they're, they're always trying to, to prove that they're tough. And after 15 and some odd years with our little dog, he's right. <laughs> and there he is, he's looking out, looking at our little baby Emma going, hmm, I don't know. I'm going to have to try to figure this out. But you can see, in his, much of his life is spent with his paws up on the end of the couch, looking out the window, barking at big dogs who are in the yard. And, you know, when you, have, when you feel inferior, you've got to do everything you can to fight back and to try to prove yourself. And far too often, the church gets caught in that trap. We are continually faced with the decision. Are we going to respond to people like they do? Or are we going to respond like Jesus? Are we going to have the mind of Christ? Paul talks about Philippians who humbled himself, became a servant, even gave his life. I mean, it's that kind of perspective that... that that we, we're called to be, and that's what it means for the church to thrive. So the question in my mind is, how do we get to that? You know, how, how do we keep ourselves from, from sliding back into being a church that is fearful and anxious and cynical and discouraged and despairing? And I think one of the primary ways we do that is through worship. We, we come together in worship to remind ourselves and to remind each other of the truth. Now we come together, we, you know, when we gather for worship, this is not something we do just because, well, that's what you do on Sunday. We do this because we need to be reminded of the truth. We spend our lives out in a world that continues to tell us that's not true. This is what you do. This is how you get ahead. This is what it means to thrive. This is what it means to be right. And this is how you you live. This is how you respond to things. And we need to come to church to remember, no, that's a photographic negative. This is the truth. And so we sing songs of the truth. And we read the scriptures of the truth. And we pray about the truth. And we hear the truth. And we speak the truth. And we encourage each other about the truth. And in worship, it's, it's all in front of us. And you see this in the book of Acts chapter 2. that It talks about what does their fellowship look like. And it, show, it says, well, their fellowship mainly is coming together and worshiping. It's vital to be reminded because it's so easy to forget when everything that's bombarding us is telling us, no, this is the truth. And when we come together, one of the most significant things we do is to give thanks to God. Nothing will cut through cynicism and despair like thanksgiving. When you stop and give thanks about things, there's something about doing that that sets our hearts right. You know, in Philippians, Paul writes in chapter 4, I rejoice in everything. Everything I rejoice and, and even at the beginning of that letter, he says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has been good. Because, people, because of my chains, not only are the church, is the church encouraged, but all of these Roman soldiers who keep sitting with me hour after hour are hearing the gospel. And good things are happening. 
And I'm rejoicing. And then he says later in that letter, I have learned to be content in whatever my circumstances. That's from a heart of thanksgiving. That's, that comes from a heart that has said, I'm going to look for every way possible to give thanks to God instead of focusing my attention on all the things that aren't going the way I want. And we come to this, so we come to this table. One of the, one of the terms that's used for, for communion through the centuries is the Eucharist, and it means the great thanksgiving. And the great prayer that accompanies that, it's an awesome prayer because it's all about giving thanks to God. And what I love about that prayer is that it it puts us into the prayer. And so when you pray that prayer, it's, Lord, we were slaves in Egypt and you came and rescued us. Lord, we were standing at at the banks of the Red Sea with our enemies at our backs and you parted the waters. Lord, we were standing on, on, the, on the, land, the land of Canaan wondering how in the world we were going to defeat these giants and these cities with all these walls, and you did it for us. We were standing around the cross when Jesus was hung there, and you forgave us. And as you come to this table, it's a table of giving thanks for who God is and what God has done for us in Christ and what he's promised to do. But along with what we do corporately, there is also the importance of what we do individually. You know, being in the scriptures, finding time and space for prayer, interacting with God, being present with God. So vital. That's why we keep doing these prayer vigils. You know, it, it, it spend hundreds of hours praying. It's not just a habit. It's something we believe is important. It's important for us as we pray for other people and circumstances and things, and it's important for us because of what God does in us as we pay, as we offer our prayers. And the silence and listening to God and speaking to God and interacting with God is vital and essential for us to keep our focus and to remember who Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ has promised to do. And we all need that because it's so easy to forget. So easy to forget. I think all of this is really, it's really a part of remembering that what happens in the book of Acts goes back to what happens in chapter 2. In chapter 1, the disciples watch Jesus ascend and they promise he's coming back. But in chapter 2, after they've spent time praying together and praying together and praying together, the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a special way. And they are not the same people from that moment on. So that when we get to the end of the book of Acts, the story doesn't end there. The story is just beginning to unfold there. And I think one of the reasons why that, that... Acts ends the way it does with sort of an abrupt ending is because it, the church keeps going. Paul may die. Peter may die. Other believers in the early church are going to die. But the church keeps going to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation all the way down the generations to you and me. And the church will continue to go in the generations beyond us in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the ways we know the church is thriving is when we see the generations coming after us, seeking God, yearning for Jesus, wanting to be his people. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. E. Stanley Jones, a great statesman of of the church in the mid-20th century, and he, he once said, you know, you, you think about everything that's going on in the world. War, terrorism, violence, moral decay. Everything you can think about that makes you want to just despair and give up. He says, what happens when we think about all of that is that our natural inclination is to say, oh my goodness, look what the world is coming to. If you're like me, you probably have said that. 
But he says, instead of that perspective, what if when we, when we thought about all that's going on in the world, we said not, look what the world is coming to, but rather, look what has come to the world. And look what is coming to the world. And that's our hope. That Jesus has come. And Jesus is coming. And we can thrive. We can be a church that thrives because of him. Father, we pray that your grace would help us open our eyes, our minds, our spirits. Make us a church that thrives through the grace of Jesus. Amen. We're going to spend some time praying together before we take... And uh, there are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin. I want to add two more to the list. Uh, yesterday morning, uh, Vernell Shannon and uh, Ted Hopkins both died after some lengthy illness. And we want to certainly pray for both of their families. Uh, the arrangements uh, have been made for next weekend. And uh, both visitations will be on Friday. And both services will be on Saturday. Uh, Vernell's visitation will be 2 to 4 and 7 to 9 at the Copeland Williams Funeral Home in Fillmore. And her service will be here at the church on Saturday morning at 11. And uh, Ted Hopkins' uh, visitation will be 2 to 4 and 6 to 8 here in the church sanctuary. And his service will be Saturday at 3 in the afternoon. I know that these families appreciate our prayers and, uh, and we want to pray for them today. I know there are other burdens and concerns that we bring with us every time we gather for worship. And as we prepare to pray together, if you'd like to use the altar rail to offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. You are good beyond measure. Lord, as we gather today, we place before you the burdens and the concerns of our hearts and our lives. We think, Father, of this world in which so many are suffering and People trying to recover from the recent terrorist attacks and the fear of those ongoing attacks. We ask that you would bring peace to our world and healing to all who are hurting and broken. We think of refugees who are just simply trying to find a place to locate that they can call home and all of the struggle of that in this country and other countries of the world. And Lord, in the midst of it, innocent people are, are, are left with nothing. And we pray that you would minister your grace to them and help your church to be a presence to them and to reach out to them. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world and we think especially of those in Harar, Ethiopia who are facing uh, years in jail because they have called on you as their savior. They've, they've faced a lot of injustice and there, there's trial and they're... they're all kinds of things that are going on. And we ask, Father, for your grace to be at work in healing, giving them courage and strength and being a witness even to those who oppose them. We pray for John and Pat Shea and thank you for their years of service and continue to bless them as they move into a different type of service. Lord, we, we do pray today for our own church and the needs we represent. And we pray for the youth ministry of this church, for Pastor John and all the people who work with him and all of the, the students in our youth group and ask for your blessing and grace upon each of them and that in this very pivotal time, their hearts would be turned to you and that we as a church would love them with all that we are. And Father, we pray for the Friends in Christ United Methodist Church in Fillmore. Thank you for their ministry through the years. 
continue to bless them as they reach out to Fillmore and beyond. Bless their, their work in the community and all the ways in which they are working, their pastor, all their lay people. Lord, pour out the abundance of your blessing upon each of them. And Father, we pray for the needs of those here in this church, and we pray for all who are grieving. We think especially of Ted's family and Vernell's family and friends and ask for your healing grace upon them in this time of grief. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with health concerns, and we think of Calvin and Laurel Booker and Warren Woolsey and Bill Getty and Phil Muker, and for Evelyn Heil and Alice Brown, for Mike Raybuck and Jill Tyson, for Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett and Micah Christensen and Linda Roth, for Dick Gould and Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler and others who may be on our hearts and our minds. Fill them with your mercy and your grace and your healing power. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And as we come to this table this morning, we pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we will do so through your grace and through your mercy and through the power of your spirit. And we ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you're released by Rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you can return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you want to stay and pray. And if coming to the front is difficult for you, we have a tray of cups and bread in the back. We'll serve you in your row. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you would like those, just let me know as you come to the front. I always like to mention we practice open communion at the Western Church. This might be the first time you've ever worshipped here, but... If you come today with your heart open to Christ, with the desire to be in his church and to serve him, then please come and receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father.
Tonight at 5 o'clock is the conclusion of the prayer vigil. We'll be meeting here as the last person is finished, and we'll have a service together, singing, a chance to share a little bit about maybe some things that uh, your experiences in the prayer room. Uh, we will um, pray together. And so we'd love to have you come tonight, 5 o'clock. But we'll be done uh, probably by 6 o'clock so the small groups can still meet. But uh, we'll meet here in the sanctuary at 5 before the service started, there were a couple of times left right after this service, 12, 1 o'clock-ish time. If you would like to get into the prayer room, go down and check out, see if it's, uh, those are still available or not. And also, if you're around next Sunday, we do need some help with children's church workers at the 820 and 11 o'clock service. If you're interested in that, just uh, contact the church office, uh, Emily Hoffman, or anyone there, and we'll get you in touch with them. Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.